It's time for First Voices Radio with Tilkison Ghost Horse. Please stay tuned. What makes you such a threat? We choose the right to be who we are. We know the difference between the reality of freedom and the illusion of freedom. There's a way to live with Earth and a way not to live with Earth. We choose the way of Earth. It's about power. Greetings and good day and welcome my relatives. I shake your hands with a good heart. It's good for all of us to be here and look for the forever ones first and let's acknowledge relationship to all and the life-giving force of the sun, moon, and stars, and wake up now, my relatives. Today will be a good day. And you're listening to First Voices Radio and Teokasin Ghost Horse, sending you greetings and strength from the highlands of the Asopus, or temporarily called the Catskill Mountains, in the lands of the Muncie-speaking Lenape. This is an all-native-hosted, all-native-produced First Voices Radio and Liz Hill from the Red Lake Ojibwe Nation is a producer of First Voices. And you can now hear us on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Buzzsprout, Spotify, as well as First Voices Indigenous Radio.org for archive, downloading, and listing, and many other media platforms out there broadcasting podcasts. Over 101, oh, excuse me, over 110 AMFM radio stations, international and national, is First Voices Radio. We have a very special guest today, and I want to introduce her this way, Trace Hentz, an adoptee and journalist. Trace Hentz is the author of One Small Sacrifice, a memoir with the history of the Indian Adoption Project and Indian Child Welfare Act, this includes her long journey to find her natural father in Illinois and tribal relatives. Trace, who created the American Indian Adoptee website in 2009, has announced a new project, The Count 2024. It coincides with the release of a new history book, Almost Dead Indians, quote unquote, book five of the Lost Children of Indian Adoption Project series. The American Indian Adoptees website is in the top 50 adoption websites with over 2.5 million views. And that website address is blog.americanindianadoptees.com. 
The book series was written by adoptees to know their own history. Trace Hence, formerly DeMeyer, has received many awards from the Indigenous Journalists Association, formerly the Native American Journalists Association, or NAJA. Her ancestry is a mix of Shawnee and Anishinaabe. And more about Trace can be found on her website at tracehence.com. That's H-E-N-T-Z, tracehence.com. Welcome to First Voices Radio, Trace Henson. I'm glad that you're back and good to have you. It's a very important topic we're talking about. And thank you for joining us here on First Voices Radio. Bonjour. Thank you very much for inviting me. And let's get right to the book, The Count 2024. What is this interest in adoptees, which is, it seems it started long ago, the history since 1492 and thereafter, but it led to this current modern day concern that there has been thousands of Native people, babies, children adopted out with no trace. And many people don't talk about this, don't want to talk about this. Um, I think it's coming out, this new exposure of another time now. And I think it's apropos for for what we're going to be talking about. How did we get here? And uh, your book, uh, Almost Dead Indians, begins with history and, a, and this quiz. And to tell us how you can relate or connect the dots, especially with first contact, East Coast tribal nations went through slavery and, and scalp bounties. Take us from there, Trace Hints, and thank you for joining us again. Thank you. Uh, I'm looking at a map of North America right now, and it's very difficult to say how many people were here uh, before uh, contact, before people showed up on boats. There are different stories about who arrived first, but primarily what happened when the French uh, arrived in in, uh, Canada, what's called Canada, And when the British and others arrived on the shores of New England and other, like Virginia, uh, that that became a conquest. And these were empires. These were the French and the British empires. And what they had, what they found was a great amount of people that were here. So the book begins with a quiz of how many people were here. And then it also gets into who the different people were that arrived on these shores. And and really, it started in New England with the taking of Native children. And uh, 24 years ago, I wrote a paper called First Contact, which is about Native American slavery. And and honestly, back then, nobody really believed me. (laughs) Uh, Now they do believe me. So um, I decided to put some of that research into this book. It's not a history book in a traditional sense. It's not dreary. Uh, There's lots of uh, illustration and quotes and links to other places that you decide you really want to read more, you can. But how, how this became adoption really started in New England when children were taken. Uh, The Scaticoke and the Eastern Pequot tell a story that uh, their children were taken not as adoptees, but as indentured servants. And it it started here and it progressed uh, to what they call Lake Mohonk, which is in the Catskills, I believe. 
And um, these uh, industrialists and other uh, very wealthy people decided that to solve the Indian problem, they would take the children. And by take, I mean uh, forcibly take by gunpoint, place them in residential boarding schools or into closed adoptions. And what I mean by closed is our, we have amended uh, our altered birth certificates, which is, I have one of those myself. And, and it changes our name and it changes our identity. It might change our birth date. It might change where we were born. It might change, like, if we, I was born in Minnesota, but my birth certificate could have actually said Wisconsin because that's where I was ultimately adopted into northern Wisconsin. So I want people to understand this history because you have to see the beginning first. And um, I when I first got to New England, I was, I visited in 1999 and then I took a job for the Pequot in tribe in Connecticut in 1999. And from there, it just grew, uh, the idea that there was slavery and the idea that there was uh, conquest and there was a lot of, um, death. I mean, we're talking genocide numbers here. And so that's put to the reader. They can read about that. Uh, but where we are today is a little different because in the 70s, some tribal leaders went to the Senate and asked for hearings. And they were saying that their children were being taken in. Um, there were no children on the reservation, essentially. And uh, that led to the passage of the Federal Indian Child Welfare Act of 1978. It took years, literally, to get that act. Uh, and that is supposed to protect Native children. Right now, it's supposed to protect them. Uh, if a child is in a situation where they can't be raised by their mother, they need to be placed with a relative or perhaps another family on the res or perhaps a, a, a family on a different tribe. And then the last resort would be to place them off uh, with a non-native couple. So I wanted people to know the history of all of this uh, because the scalp bounties, most people don't know about that. They don't know about captives. I, put, I even wrote a chapter in the back of the book about Fort Detroit, which is fascinating history. Uh, we were a French colony, and then we were a, a British colony, and then America fought for it. And Fort Detroit's a, a really important part of, of history. A lot of this happened and how tribes were doing their best to negotiate uh, with these invaders. You know, I call them the plant the flag people. <laughs> I mean that sincerely. And uh, where we are today is we're still here. I want people to be um, aware of that. And adoptees are struggling sometimes to open their records. And I wanted to write a history book that they would know uh, what had happened and what they can do about it. I have a question about, you know, most people are saying, well, can you prove what you just said, Trace Hansen? Can, can, are there stories available? And I would kind of answer that and say yes, because that's the, the, the gist of what you're saying. There are stories that write about the, the children being taken even way back then. But those stories are available for those people who want proof, so to speak, in, in written form. But you spoke also about 70s and what Indian Child Welfare came along and in, in the act to protect the Native children. But there's a certain percentage that were taken even way back then. Certainly in my state of South Dakota, they 
They were even selling children, native children, up to a certain date in the 60s. And these things are not known. There's a lot of distractions out there, so they do not pay attention to native history. Can you take us through, again, this anthology of lost children of Indian adoption projects in Canada? It would be the 60s scoop and that history. Well, the, it, we're so similar. Uh, Canada uh, did have, it, it, I don't know why they call it the 60s, because it happened much earlier. It, it You know, it happened from contact, actually. So they are, um, they're more aware of their history. I think the, the um, adoptees that are from First Nations uh, in what is called Canada, um, there are several adoptees that are very vocal about their history. There's one uh, advocate, they call her, uh, is asking for a tribunal because they want to know the numbers. They don't know how many ch children were removed. And they said that it didn't even include the Métis, which would have been a very large group of children. Now, in the United States, we have probably the best best visibility, visibility excuse me, came with the baby Veronica case that went to the Supreme Court. And I uh, was writing about that in like 2013 and, and forward. Uh, so we still have that issue. And there are private adoption agencies that will claim that they don't know the ancestry of a child. And that's how children can slip through the cracks. But you were right. There were children that were, it was, they were called indenture contracts. A child as young as three years old could have been sold. I have one example in the book that he was sold for a barrel of pork and he was quite young. His mother was native. He was, he was called a mulatto because obviously he was a mix. And um, these indenture contracts are at the Pequot Museum. If somebody wants to go look at the originals and it happened uh, that we're, the Indian problem, I think that's what they ultimately called it, the Indian problem. And the solution was the children to assimilate them and put them in non-native situations with families. There were some adoptees in, in the anthologies that I've done where these are adoptees that wrote their own stories. So in the first one, Two Worlds, one fascinating story is a Navajo adoptee named Leland Morell. He was adopted in, uh, I believe, New Mexico. He's Navajo. But then his family, Mormon family, moved up to Canada. And there they took seven more children. But ultimately, there was a woman, I've got her name written down here because I, I don't, I block it out of my mind sometimes. In the Toronto Star, there was a woman named Helen Allen who wrote a column called Today's Child. And what it looked like was a catalog. It was a picture. And she claimed on Bob Barker's TV show in 1964, she placed 10,000 children. And these were native children. But the, the advocate in Canada is saying that the number that the lawyers came up with for a class action was 20,000. 34,000 to this date today uh, have actually applied uh, to be compensated, They're, they actually have a class action in Canada for the First Nations for those adoptees to be compensated for what happened to them. Um, it's called cultural genocide because we've lost our language. Um, we don't know who we are. And then we have to assimilate back into our tribal nations, which, as you know, can be very difficult. I know I, I heard your interview with Sandy Whitehawk, and that was just a beautiful interview. 
And she has um, that movie that was made called Blood Memory is a very good example of what happened to a child who was taken by missionaries, as Sandy was. And then she had to find her way home. And that that's it takes your almost your entire life. So um, and that's why the anthologies were really important. I, I sent them some questions. I said, if you can answer these, please do. So it became uh, three volumes of narratives where adoptees explain um, how they found out they were adopted and then what they did after and how they went into reunion with their travel relatives and got themselves enrolled. And Leland was one example of the Shawanaga, uh, those seven children that were taken from the Shawanaga that Mormon family left Canada and went to the United States and they settled in South Dakota and they had even adopted two additional children and they were paid every month for each child. I want people to understand that there was a financial incentive for people to take native children. If you were, if you were adopted, that was, you'd think that would be the end of it, but with the Mormons, they actually paid a monthly, you know, a fee to the parents for having adopted native children. And there's a lot of native adoptees from, uh, from the Navajo nation, a lot. And that seems to go across the board, Trace. And also just clip of, of experience here is that being a child in the 1960s in boarding school also, but being yeah. in a child and being with the family that I had then, there was a certain amount of criteria that the, the government social worker or state social worker would come to the reservation. And I remember these very well that we had, when that, that day we dressed up in our best that we could dress up into, you know, and we weren't, we would sit still in just like a firm manner, like we were supposed to be pristine, clean, um, and our hair was combed and, you know, everything. But we, we were wild children we would go out and you know ride horses all day and get in the mud and eat plants mm -hmm. or in berries and this is how i grew up and mm -hmm. when that one day almost every month the state social worker would arrive and one of the criteria that i really researched after was why these babies were being taken away. Even there's other criteria with employment and, you know, abuse or, or alcoholism or any of the things that they tend to look at that that is actually in their own society, in a greater society. But they looked at one thing, and you probably heard about this. this these are called the Mon Mongolian birthmarks. So the, the Mongolian blueback or the Mongolian blue spots that are on the back of dark-skinned babies such as Native people, some of us were born with these blue spots on our back. Mm -hmm. What happened is the social workers used that to take away the children because they said that was a sign of abuse. Oh, dear God. Yeah. This, this is, this is um, the story that I carry, that this was allowed as criteria to take away children. And, and it, it's known that Mongolian people as well as native children more to full blood they are have blue backs mm -hmm. and there's a story going to that with creation and how children came to being in this dimension so to speak so i just wanted to add that i hope i didn't interrupt the flow here oh but no that's, so, that's good to know okay great thank you and 
So the 60s scoop, 70s scoop, whatnot, these are old titles, but you say it happened way back then. But mm -hmm. the title of your book is intriguing. What does Almost Dead Indians mean? Why did you choose that title? <laughs> well, hopefully it will keep, you know, stay in someone's mind. They'll think, what does that mean? Um, adoptees have said these exact words to me. If we're not enrolled and if we don't know where our families are, we are almost dead Indians. Because if we're not if we're not known to them, they think of us as not being alive anymore. Uh, it's very sad. I mean, it, it's it's tragic. There is quite a bit of history about how Native people were killed. And for example, in the 1700s, British soldiers said, "We will send a flag to kill the vermin." And I mean, vermin—that was the word they used. So um, I think, I'm so sorry, my brain is, I, I'm, I'm in a million places at sometimes. Um, the title of the book, when I first started writing it, I had put the only good Indian is a dead Indian. That was when I was just researching adoption, which was a very long time ago, uh, 20, or excuse me, 2004. I started just researching just adoption. And I had a draft of the book and I sent it to an agent in New York and she looked at it and she said, but you have to write about you. And I was like, what? And so it turned into a memoir and dead Indians was still, you know, the only good Indian is a dead Indian was still in a draft form, but it was, it was a lot of history about how adoption started. And so that title uh, actually was because so many native native adoptees have said to me, we're almost dead Indians. So that that is the short version of how it became that book title. That's a good thought there to, to know where the book, book title comes. And I know from boarding school experience here, um, leading up to the next question about residential or boarding schools in Canada, but mostly in the United States, is sometimes there were children taking early, especially in the elementary uh, classes in boarding okay. schools, and they completely disappeared later to find out that they were adopted out right. by the non-natives who basically that was the, you know, helping the poor native people. And, and so, you know, what happens to these folks who were registered in boarding schools with their tribes? And as you say, some of the records disappear. So there's, there's sort of this, this uh, hyphenated history going on. And as you, as, as probably a, uh, you know, I don't know how to say this is a recipient or a, a, a casualty of this um, lost these lost records. Is this has this ever been talked about before, Trace? I mean, maybe in small, you know, back rooms, but now it needs to come out because it's time. Right. Uh, when I started, honestly, in 2005, I was asked by Steve Elm in New York at the American Indian Community House. He asked me to write a story about Native adoptees, and there was nothing. There was nothing. And and there was an Internet. But then when I, I realized, when I was asked to write about it, I'm a Native adoptee, and I had been to the Wiping the Tears with Sandy Whitehawk, and I realized in 2005 I had to find other native adoptees to find out how they were doing and what had happened to them and how did they ever find out? I mean, you might look in the mirror and go, oh yeah, well, you know, I might be a, a Lakota or Navajo. Uh, they might know, but they might not know. 
And so that's, it took me, um, oh my goodness. I wrote so many drafts for Steve Elm and he kept saying, no, no. And, and I finally woke up one morning and it just came out. I wrote a draft of that story and it's called generation after generation. We are coming home. And I put it in the book cause I wanted people to see that, um, it, it took a lot of, of, of digging, uh, and, and a lot of effort to find, uh, native adoptees and, and, you know, we're everywhere it right here, one town over from me, uh, there was a, a Lakota adoptee who I met in at the wiping the tears of Wisconsin and, 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 uh, Kyrie Irving, he's standing rock. His mother was a native adoptee. Um, there's so many examples. Chris Eyre, the filmmaker. Um, how did they find out? Well, Chris Eyre was in Portland, Oregon, and, and he decided to go and open his records. I'm not exactly sure how he did it, but he was he went into reunion with his mother quite quite early. Uh, it, you know, I was 21 when I went to a judge, and I was thinking I was going to beg him to let me see my file just so I could find out my medical history because I didn't have any medical history there was no I had I had no idea who my ancestors were and so the judge opened my adoption for me but uh, that's what I found out is that you, each individual native person who was adopted out has a different story we're not all the same um, some have had to do DNA with a tribal relative in order to become enrolled it's not easy they there's even in Canada they talk about this pile of paperwork you have to fill out. And some people like me, I don't have my original birth certificate. I will get it um, in July from Minnesota. I still don't have it. You know, I'm, I'm 67 years old. So it's a big process to try and do this. And I do help people. So they can go to AmericanIndianAdoptees.com and send me a message. And I'd be happy to do whatever I can do to help them. We're talking with Trace Hintz, author of Almost Dead Indians. It's about our history, ties, and how these government-funded programs were run by churches and charities and were meant to erase children permanently from tribal roles, making us dead Indians almost. And before we go to our second half, I want to say this about the genocide of indigenous peoples, colonial genocide or settler genocide. Is the intentional elimination of indigenous peoples as part of the process of colonialism? And according to Patrick Wolf, a scholar, genocide of the native population is especially likely in cases of settler colonialism, with some scholars arguing that settler colonialism is inherently genocidal. While the concept of genocide was formulated by Raphael Lemkin in the mid-20th century, the expansion of various Western European colonial powers, such as the British and Spanish empires and the subsequent establishment of colonies on indigenous territories, frequently involved acts of genocidal violence against indigenous groups throughout the world. And according to Lemkin, colonization was in itself intrinsically genocidal. He saw this genocide as a two-stage process the first being the destruction of indigenous populations' way of life. In the second stage, the newcomers impose their way of life on indigenous groups. Some of the deadliest extermination campaigns against native populations in human history were perpetrated by European colonial empires against the indigenous peoples of the Americas. Between the late 15th and late 17th century, 
the population of Native, quote-unquote, Americans decreased from approximately 145 million to less than 15 million. During this period, a minimum of 130 million Indigenous Americans are estimated to have died in deadly massacres, mass rapes, forced starvations, wars, and chattel slavery imposed by European settlers and various epidemics. You're listening to First Voices Radio. My name is Tioksen Ghost Horse. We were told uh, long ago that we would see America come and go. I often wondered what generation that would be. What would be the signs that we would see America in its failing times? And I think we're in that. And I think that this kind of exploitation is more recognizable and identifiable. The cultures are getting stronger and beginning to realize it's about your own survival and not about America so much. But the more pollution there is, the more cancer there is. So you begin to see a nation dying from within. So what you know about the life of a native? Growing up to generations most hated. Every day my people get discriminated based on the stereotypes you done created. Nowadays you have the audacity to pass us off. As a lower class, nowadays you laugh at us. But now is the day where we finally had enough. From this day forth, now all the days we're standing up. Too many years you oppressed us, oppressed us. Infect us with your disease and left us. Millions of my people dead, now you expect us. So bold, give and forget like it don't affect us. You can try to change history and hide that it wasn't genocide, but read between the lines and you will find war crimes masterminded. Now you wonder why people turn to suicide and have a hard time searching and finding who they really are, cause they're constantly reminded of the time when you came uninvited. Entered our homes and took your young kids crying away from their families, the tragedies. Let's far so deep, no apologies. We'll never cover up the pain that you caused us. Now is the day where you see my people stand up. So what you know about the life of a native? Growing up to generations most hated. Every day my people get discriminated based on the stereotypes you done created. Nowadays you have the audacity to pass us off. As a lower class, nowadays you laugh at us. But now is the day where we finally had enough. From this day forth, now all the days we're standing up. Now all the days you'll commend and respect us. Gone all the days you apprehend and offend us. Pretend to us you're a friend, but forget trust. We all know the scheme that you're hiding your agendas. We all see through the teeth and the lies. A smile in the skies, but your eyes can't hide it. But now is the time we'll speak and we'll rise. All you want is other minds, but we can't stay. Silent through our chiefs and the elders, we are guided. Divided, we fall, but together stand united. For our earth and the water, we will fight it. Our mother earth is crying, now you can't deny it. We are not the enemy that we're set to be. We're thinking of the generation that's ahead of me. So we'll continue to take the earth back for all of us, white, black, or brown. Well, together we should stand up. So, what you know about the life of a native? Growing up to generations most hated. Every day my people get discriminated Based on the stereotypes you done created Nowadays you have the audacity to pass us off As a lower class, nowadays you laugh at us But now is the day where we finally had enough From this day forth, now all the days we're standing up So what 
you know about the life of a native Growing up the generations most hated Every day my people get discriminated Based on the stereotypes you done created Nowadays you have the destiny to pass us off As a lower class, nowadays you laugh at us But now is the day where we finally had enough From this day forth, now all the days we're standing up Canada in a world where we need to build on mutual respect moving slowly across this country and educating people. So I think there's a time when all racism will be abolished. And that is Life of a Native out of Calgary, Canada. Okama is a proud Indigenous artist and entrepreneur. He leads a healthy lifestyle that is meant to inspire his Indigenous peoples and allies And his music tells his story of battling depression, poverty, violence, and addiction, and how using music as an outlet has enabled him to heal, ultimately leading to his success and full potential. Thanks for joining us here on First Voices Radio. We get back to the second half of our interview with Trace Hintz. We're talking with Trace Hintz, who is an author of one book called One Small Sacrifice, a memoir but also the book Almost Dead Indians, herself, Trace. And then, I mean, your name is Trace, right? I know. Isn't that strange or no? We're looking for the truth, and and a lot of that has lost, and even in boarding schools, uh, well, they didn't attend. We don't have have, um, records of them attending that boarding school, right? Right. Immediately disappeared. So it, it does happen. And, the, and, of course, the United States of American government has never really formally or any reformation or even apology and offered any settlement to those peoples like you and in adoption and adoptees, right? So, but there is this um, framework set up. And I, I would think that that's what you're working from is a framework of research and maybe a refinement someday where you really can find where you come from, but the one thing that many, even Native people are going to say, well, we can't prove it that you're Native or you come from here. And that that comes to a, li- a little concern for both sides, uh, the more who say they can prove because the government kept records as far as degree of blood. And then there's the other side that say, well, this is a picture of my great-grandmother, which we get a lot. I get a lot. Because I look that stereotypical native, not American viewed, but just that's the way it is. My family is Lakota. And mm-hmm. and so when I think about that, what, what do you feel? What do you think that other people who are afraid to even reach out because they will get a sort of a backlash from native people as well as non-natives? Well, I, we have a history problem, Tiokasin. I think you know that. I think that There are up to 10 million adoptees in America at this moment. And if that's the case, then we have a lot of fake genealogy. And we also have a lot of inaccurate DNA. Uh, You know, I mean, I know a lot of people like to think that they're going to get Ancestry.com to tell them where they're from, which you can't prove. Uh, Tribes aren't participating uh, as much in the DNA. uh, What do you want to call it? Craze? You know, like people are are crazed to know, you know, where am I from and what tribe? And so we have, we have a huge history problem. 
were much more mixed, especially starting on the East Coast. Young boys, 14 and older, were automatically killed uh, when they when they were um, when they encountered the invaders. Um, and and there were lots of Pequots that were loaded onto ships. So and these Pequots and other tribes could be anywhere. I mean, I really think that history is the problem. I think that not having an accurate idea of our earliest contact with different uh, people, different groups of people that came here. Um, I mean, the, the Wampanoag on the, on the Cape talk about that they had uh, contact with Vikings. So there were people coming here. I, I think Jack Forbes wrote that there were some Buddhist monks that traveled the United States. Um, I'm not going to remember what year, but it was really early. It's before any um, documented uh, voyager came to uh, the United States shores. So, you know, we have to know our history better. And I think one of the things that really got me the other day was I found an article from Brown University from 2017 that this scholar says they glossed over Native American slavery. And he, those were the exact words he used, glossed over. And that just struck me. So we have a history problem. I, I absolutely know people that say, well, but in my family's story, you know, they're from Kentucky or they're from Tennessee. I have ancestors from Kentucky and Tennessee and good luck, you know, finding a lot of those early narratives and finding out because believe me, people um, after after things were starting to move west, people were becoming white, even if they weren't, because you couldn't even own land or you couldn't own a farm. So people, you know, moved into different parts of the west and they would have denied that they were anything but white. So I give people the benefit of the doubt. Um, of course, I've heard, you know, the Cherokee thing, you know, like, yes, well, they don't know about the Potawatomi. Would they be able to say, well, I'm Potawatomi? They've never even probably heard of the Potawatomi or, you know, Anishinaabe, you know, uh, or Lakota. So um, we have a history problem. We have a documentation problem. We have a fear problem. We have Native people that were hunted and shot and scalp bounties. Uh, there's a bounty movie that people need to see. Uh, it's called Bounty.org, I believe. It's out of Maine where they said that it was $12,000 for a scalp for a male and half that for a woman and a little bit less for a child. And these bounties were activated uh, here in New England, but they also spread across the United States. So people need to know that history. It's it's gruesome. It's just gruesome. And if, if the, it's written about the documentations are there even. Oh, yeah. The, the, you know, the, the actual documents, uh, the proclamation, so to speak. But also, oh, yeah. the, there was a border that never existed. But yet, when it comes to exchanging Native children back and forth from Canada to the U.S., and that existed. People, and I've never heard about this, but I sense there was something. Why did a border, a border did not stop the exchange of children from the U.S. as well oh, as no. Canada? Right. That, no, that, that's called ARENA, the Adoption Resource Exchange of America. That was funded by both governments. Children from Canada could have been brought to the United States. And there's, there were several examples of this uh, in the book that they even know how much their uh, white adoptive parents paid for them. And that was, that was called the Adoption Resource Exchange of America. 
Uh, and, and American children could have been sent to Canada as well. There's a story in the book from a, a man named Joey who was adopted in New York. Uh, his story is pretty much encapsulates everything that can happen to a Native person who loses his identification and finds out he's not American and he has to get all the adoption documents because after 9-11, you know how things became really critical that you had documentation. And he actually went back to Canada to his reserve and he's still there. So, you know, we have, there are really good examples in this book. There's some really great stories that will illustrate what I'm, what I'm saying, that uh, there were children from Canada that were brought to the United States. Absolutely. They could be anywhere. They could be, as a matter of fact, that, that new documentary, Little Bird, it's, it's, it's a fictional film, but you really have to see it because it's the story of Canada, but it's also the story of the United States. It ties it in, it ties it in very well. And how children like uh, Gizik in the Little Bird, her brother was taken to North Dakota. He was driven there by a social worker. So that did happen. There were social workers in Canada that drove children to the United States. People don't know that, that people do not know that. So you could really be a First Nation and you could be living in Florida and you, you may not know unless you actually physically open your adoption and find out what happened. And that's really hard to do, too. This is a long story, a long running story. Personally, I know some people who actually were the origin is in, from, in Canada someplace, in, like in Manitoba, Alberta. And, and then they're, they're here, they're in the States, and they're trying to get home, and they don't know where to go. And it's like that confusion in their lives. In your book, Almost Dead Indians, you quote Elowen Locke, who is an Oglala Lakota in your life. And in what way is she part of the mention that you talk about? Well, before I before I was able to meet my birth father, I didn't meet him till 1994 when I was 38 years old. I've been going out to see Elowen. Uh, she's in Porcupine. I know you know where that is. It's north of Wounded Knee a little bit. And I don't. I was in such a bad way then. Uh, I had I had to write to my birth mother and ask her for the name of my father and. I wasn't sure she would do it. I kind of wrote a threatening letter a little bit because I, I needed her to give me the name of my father. But Ellen was uh, an important part of my life. Um, she taught me about generosity. Um, she is, you know, she's Lakota. She taught me, you know, Lakota as, as best she could. She sat me at her kitchen table. She told me history, history that we never, ever, ever, ever would have learned in our schools in the United States. And I think that, that because of that contact with her, I owe her my life because I was soon divorced in 95. I was actually separated from him. And um, she brought me through and she was with me all the way through a uh, reunion. Uh, she knew when I was visiting my birth father when I flew from Oregon to Illinois to meet him. Uh, she knew all the steps along the way, meeting relatives, uh, I I couldn't have done it without her. And so that's the reason why I say in my book, I owe her my life. And uh, I lost her in 2015. And, you know, I, I'll never be the same, you know, because she changed me. Mm. And she gave me a name. We are Omanisa Washte Lake. Mm. Oh, so uh, yeah. I was a relative. 
you know, I was a relative to her brother, Merle Locke. He's a, he's a ledger artist. I know all of her siblings. Whenever she would call me on the phone, we would talk about every single family member. You know, I'd ask, how's, you know, how's your sister? How's Cheryl? You know, and uh, I learned just being with her, um, what it means to be, uh, I don't want to say, I hate the word Indian. I, I liked what you said, indigenous. Is that what you had on your, um, I think that was on one of your websites, indigenous. Yeah. Yeah, I do yeah. use that, but it's it's uh, you know it's interchangeable depending on the meanings of who you're explaining it to. Because as you know, there's many native people here, even back when we were hyphenated native uh, yes. Americans. <laughs> and, right, American yeah. Indian. Trace hands. There is um, a revealing going on here, um, a new consciousness, or actually, it's not so much new to native people, but to the those in the United States, Americans, whatnot, citizens, this is an outing, as they call it. What is an outing to you? Well, I can give you a really good example. Uh, Jim Thorpe had been taken to Carlisle, uh, the residential boarding school. It was actually in military barracks that had been part of the Army. And an outing meant that Jim Thorpe was taken from Carlisle to a farm family in Pennsylvania there he was sweeping out the barn and washing floors, and he was forced to eat away from the family. He was so upset, he ran away back to Carlisle. An outing is, Elowen brought this up to me. She said, you've got to find out what happened to one of my relatives. He was at Carlisle, and supposedly he was killed in a car accident in, on an outing. And I, I, I didn't know what she meant. I, I didn't know what an outing was. And now I understand, and Carlisle is doing, uh, well, the people that are doing the residential boarding school research project, NABS, I believe, um, they are starting to document where some of these children were taken. They believe that there were 10,000 children that went on outings and, and, most, and they didn't come home. They're dead. And how they died, that's also a mystery. They're looking for the graves in Pennsylvania right now where these children uh, were placed with families they weren't made family members they were made to be workers and how they died is still a mystery i think they're probably going to have to uh huh, i don't even know how would you find that out i do have some of that in the book teokas and i i had i felt like i had to put that in yeah there's, there's these quandaries sometimes I, I am actually a recipient of some objects we'll call them mm -hmm. objects like an mm -hmm. old stone pipe or whatnot and mm -hmm. wonder where these come from. And they, they came from that Pennsylvania area. When the children from all over the United States reached Carlisle in those days, they came with their father's pipes or something from their peoples to keep them safe and secure and protect them. But they were taken away. And then they were given out to the community, the greater at large. They disappeared and sometimes they would find them in hobby shops or even um, pawn shops. And the tracing of these, you know, maybe the records are kept. That's one way to find out. And then the period of them that were made is basically was the 1800s or even before because it was an intergenerational giving of pipes here and there. One thing that I wanted to ask you, is there a success rate adoptees coming home? I'm trying to determine that. 
I have found hundreds of adoptees, but we don't know the accurate numbers. I, I woke up last year and I thought I have to find them. And so I, I put, a, put together a website called The Count 2024. And even if you're not in reunion, even if you were told you could be the child of an adoptee that was that told you, I'm look at me, I'm, you know, I'm a native person, but I don't know, you know, what what uh, tribes. So I want people to, you know, fill out a survey and they can send it to me and then we'll just start compiling uh, data. I, I hate even calling it data because that's such a scary word right now. But it's all 100% confidential, and I think I might be able to do a few reunions out of this if, if a mother had a child taken from a hospital in South Dakota, for example, and she doesn't know what happened to him. I talked to a assistant tribal chairwoman. This was quite a few years ago now, and she told me that if some of the Sissident adoptees, if they if they went to Texas, they never came home. And I was like, why? I don't I don't understand that. But I think tribes probably do have those ICO records on Verez, and they could open those. They could look for children. They can get in touch with me, and I can help them find them. Uh, there are lots of adoptees all over the United States. Um, literally, you could be anywhere. Uh, and, and that's the reason why I need to find more, and we need to. We have some. Uh, in the back of the book, I have something called the Outcomes of the Indian Adoption Projects. There was more than one. And in the outcomes, they claim in the United States what was documented from reports that had to be filed with the federal government. For example, uh, 585 Indian children had been adopted in 1961. And this was written in a letter by Joseph Reed. Uh, there was a man named Lyslo. I think I'm saying that right. Uh, he said in, uh, I think this year is 1963, there had been 696 documented. Now, these were, do I mean, documented in the fact that they had to report back uh, their findings to the government because the government was paying for it. So ultimately, according to one study, they believe that close to 13,000 children were part of the Indian Adoption Project. So I, I want people to know that. And I have not met 13,000 adoptees, but I'd be willing to. <laughs> and that's the reason why I set up a website called The Count. Uh, it's a survey, and people can fill out as best they can. Uh, there's a couple tribal chairmen up in First Nations in Canada that were raised in the United States. One, for example, was raised in Pittsburgh, but once he found out where he was from, he went back to his First Nation and it took several years, but now he's tribal chairman, and that's happened with a woman as well. Um, she was uh, part of the Ontario class action, and she is a tribal chairperson now. So I, I would like to find uh, people on both sides of this imaginary border uh, in Turtle Island, and if you know, piece together this puzzle. That's that's what I'm going to try and do. Trace, there at the time you mentioned thirteen thousand children right. at that time. And that's over over a period of time, but I'm thinking back in the turn of the 19th into the 1900s, there were barely a quarter of a million Native people left. Mm -hmm. And if you take that significance of 13,000 children, you know, that were able to be captured, taken, stolen, or basically, right. you know, taken, so removed. And 
that percentage is very high. That would right. be removing, you know, maybe two, three, four, five percent of children only, but even higher because even today, when I was young, up to 64% of the children were being adopted out, taken away, removed, or displaced. To me, that's it's an ongoing thing because it's affecting generations of us later. And I wanted to thank you for, for being here. Any last words, thoughts that you have? I want people to just be extremely aware that what you weren't taught in school, that information it, it exists. The information exists. So if you if you've never even liked history, there's some things I think you need to know, and that's the reason why um, I decided to put together research on first contact and and on the residential boarding schools and on, on adoption. I think we need to know why or how they solved the Indian problem. They didn't actually solve it. They did not succeed. They had a plan, but so did we. We planned to survive, and we're still here. We're still here. So I hope people will contact me if they know someone uh, or if they are an adoptee themselves. And I, I really appreciate you, Tiokasen, for your work and for teaching me some things today. Thank you. And uh, I just want people to to uh, go to the American Indian adoptees and start reading stories about, you know, what's going on with this whole situation. Thank you so much, Trace Hens, for the website and your work also. Again, it's an honor to have you here. And um, yeah, so we'll probably pay attention to you. We'll trace Trace, okay? And yeah. figure out where you're at this time, next time. And <laughs> let us know any progress, if that's what it is. And um how far it moves, okay? Thank you so much for being here, Trace Hints. Um, yeah. Thank you. And you can find out more about Trace Hints at blog.americanindianadoptees.com. Again, those children lost to adoption agencies, sometimes high as 64%, up to 80%. So there we go. And this is First Voices Radio. My name is Teokasen Ghost Horse. Yeah.
American Dream by Andara, 2019. That's spelled O N D A R A, out of Kenya. Again, this is Tioxen Ghost Tours. Doksha Ake Wachinktelo. We'll see you again soon.